My name's Tom. This is my Bible. I'm not sure that I'm qualified or whatever Brett said, but we're going to spend uh, some time this, together this morning um, in a series. Hey, um, I, I, Dan sort of stole my thunder, but I, I wanna, I'm just going to start by, by saying I was, I was actually going to have you share something, and I'll just share mine anyway, um, since, since uh, you didn't get to share it with each other. But, um, but we, symbols are powerful, and we've got some symbols around us. We're starting a new series today, and um, this series is about, is about chains, okay? It's about bondage. It's about, it's about um, freedom that can be had, and we're going gonna, gonna to spend the next couple months on this. So we hope, okay, we hope as we invite you into this, we hope that you're with us for a while on this, that you, that you hang in there with us, that you're, you, you, you examine the scriptures with us. Um, but really, um, in looking at this symbol of the chains, we're going we're gonna to be talking about a story. Okay? We're going to be talking about a story and the power of a story. Because we're going to be inviting you, and, and, and together we'll be looking at the story that, that we encounter in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus. And, um, and, and in, in the book of Exodus, we find a story that, that is a, a very powerful story. And in fact, it's so powerful that it's something that we might call, it's missing a letter. It's my typo. Um, not a met narrative. <laughs> I was going to look really smart until I misspelled the like $5 word. Um, it's a meta narrative. There should be an A in there. I am now exposed before you as the fool for which I pretend not to be. All right. We're going to be talking about a meta narrative. Okay. Now, that's, it's kind of a big word. All right. It's a word that actually is at the center of a lot of cultural, um, cultural clash, cultural controversy. Okay. It's, it's a word that's, that, is, that, that, that is at the center of, of sort of the shift that people would say is taking place from moving from what we call a modern society to a postmodern society. But a meta-narrative is kind of a technical term. And, and what it's a term for is, is the word meta, again, not just met, but meta, this, this prefix on it, is, is the idea of something that is big or grand, it's large. Okay? And the narrative is, is a story. So a meta-narrative is a big or grand story. Okay? It's not just a big or grand story. It's, it's a story through which people groups or, or maybe some individuals, but, but by and large groups of people, a story through which they interpret their own story or their own lives. So it's commonly said that a meta-narrative is a story, it's a single story that gives meaning to many other individual stories. Right? That's a meta-narrative. We have lots of them. Okay? We have lots of many meta-narratives. We have sort of an American meta-narrative, okay? right? It's, it's, so, it's rooted somewhere in liberty, you know, freedom, the pursuit of the individual pursuit of happiness. Um, the, the underdog, I think that's part of our like, revolutionary story, the, the people group that could, that could do this. Um, I didn't grow up here in Ohio. I think Ohio has a meta-narrative, Okay? I think Ohio, I, I love it here. This is my, it's, my, it's my home of choice, not of birth. But I think Ohio has a meta-narrative, and it's sort of this, like, we're really underappreciated meta-narrative. I don't know exactly what the story is or where it came from, but it's this story that sort of says, like, hey, all of you out there pointing at us, you don't know what you're talking about. We're much better than you think we are. Stop just calling us a flyover state, okay? Maybe. Maybe, if, if I hit a spot there with some of you. Like, we're known for more than just football, maybe. Um, sometimes there's generational meta-narratives. 
okay? Generational meta-narratives, I think, I think in our culture, we're, we're sort of writing like a millennial meta-narrative, that there's this, there's this story of, of, of people of a certain age who grew up um, maybe under-challenged and overstimulated, and what do we do now? But, but, but there's more than just that meta-narrative, for generations, there's sort of the meta-narrative of the greatest generation, the title of the book about, about the, the generation that went to war in World War II and then came back and, and sort of built our country into the, the 20th century sort of power that it was. Some families, some families have meta-narratives of their own. Fam- maybe families of power, maybe not. Maybe families of nothing. The immigrant, immigrant family were where they were given nothing and they came to a place and they built themselves up, okay? These are stories that, that in and of themselves contain, may or may not contain, like, honest-to-goodness, 100% facts, but they're stories through which we interpret our stories. They, they give us meaning. Um, and so, so we tend to orient ourselves around one or more of these stories. We tend to we tend to interpret our experience through these stories. So I would say this, when you come across a story that touches you or moves you, it's probably touching somewhere close to your personal meta-narrative, okay? Your, your big story, the story that you kind of grasp onto that, that gives some meaning. And this is where I was going to have you share, some of you share like with each other, what are your favorite stories? And, and, but I'll just share the fact that I don't know what this says about me. But all of my favorite stories are about lonely, broken men who just can't seem to catch a break in life. Um, and and, and so, so I'm just drawn to them um, for whatever reason. I don't know. Um, but what we're going to do, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to examine a meta-narrative, a big picture. And I'm going to get rid of that slide now because it's driving me crazy. It's misspelled. Is that one spelled right? Okay, all right. Um, we're going to examine a meta-narrative over the next couple months. It's, it's, a, it's a long, drawn-out story. It's not something that really we can contain all of it in one week. We're going to look at different parts of it and what we find within it. Okay? But we're going to look at the story of the Exodus in the Old Testament. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, we're going to start reading there in just a few minutes. Right at the beginning, Exodus chapter 1. But the book of Exodus is a grand story. It's a meta-narrative. It is still to this day, to this day, it is the meta-narrative of the Jewish people. Right? It's a story that, that, contains, that contains good fortune, but, but also oppression. And then rescue from that oppression. And flourishing even in the midst of the oppression. It's this big story of people living away from their own land. Right? But, but, but on, a, on a, a mission from God to reclaim it. It's a, it's a meta-narrative. But it's not just a meta-narrative for one particular group because you see what Exodus also provides is a story through which we can interpret other biblical stories. The story of the Exodus provides a framework, provides a framework for which, through which we understand the story of Jesus. Okay? And in fact, Jesus himself sort of recognized that his story, what he was in, was was a fulfillment of a lot of other stories. And look at what he said in John chapter 5. Oh, it went too far back. John chapter 5, he said this. He said, you, he's talking to the religious leaders. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He said, and it is they that bear witness about me. 
So you see, what he's saying is, you search your, your, your scriptures, which Exodus was the primary story of their scriptures that they held on to as this is the way that God is going to rescue us. It's, it's, an, it's a pattern he's established for our benefit. And Jesus says, you search them, religious leaders, you go there and you look for answers to the questions of understanding how I work. And Jesus says, but they're about me. The, the, the grand story that you're looking at is standing in front of you. Those are all just types. They're all just, just symbols of what you're seeing in your present day. So, so the Exodus story provides a meta-narrative for even that the Christian story is built upon. And I would go a step further and say this, all of us, every one of us, if Christ is real, I'm gonna, we're going to have to make an assumption here at the outset, But if Christ really is the answer, if he really is the way, then Christ's story, as it reflects the Exodus story, is speaking directly into our stories. It's speaking into our lives, where we live, what we do. If it's a grand, big story through which we can interpret and understand our our lives and, and the stories that we find ourselves in, then by looking at it, we ought to understand something about ourselves. And what we do with that story has meaning. Look at the next verse there in John 5 with me. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you, you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. But look, what there's a second part of that. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, we all have a choice about this, these stories. So even before we enter into the actual story, we have a choice about what we're going to do with them. We have a choice about the story. We can look at it and say, hey, nice story. Or, hey, there's parts of that that really resonate with me. Or we can continue to dig and say, I just don't know. I just haven't. Or we can examine the story and see it for the truth that it is and attach the fact of our belief, the reality of our belief to what the story has to say. And so over the next couple months, beginning today, we're going to look at a big story. Okay? It's a large narrative section of the scriptures. It's a meta-narrative. And we're going to take the time to look at it methodically and purposefully to try and, t- and see what it, it's telling us about these chains that we're surrounded by. So if you've got your Bible, would you go to, to uh, Exodus chapter 1? If you've got your Bible, would you go to Exodus chapter 1? And let's start reading right at verse 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. And it says this, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Verse 6, then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the Lord was filled with them. When you think about a story, if you think about a story that probably a lot of us are familiar with, I would say it's maybe one of the greatest American stories. Every one of the stories that gets told in this saga begins with a text scroll. Okay? Star Wars, right? You're getting the text scroll here at the beginning, the Star Wars text scroll here at the beginning of Exodus chapter 1. Okay? The rebels are fleeing from, you know, whichever empire is after them now. Da, da, da. We're, no trade disputes. We hate those. Okay, so 
So, but the, we're getting a text scroll, okay? A text scroll. And it's telling us there's a, in order to, in order to enter into this story, there's a backstory. There's a story that came before this one. And it, it gives us in those verses, verses 1 through 7 in, in chapter 1, it gives us some backdrop to what we're about to read. And the backdrop is that, that several hundred years prior to Exodus chapter 1, there was a family, okay? There was a family. And, 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 and time frame-wise, we're probably talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,800 years before Christ, so roughly 4,000 years ago. And this family was hungry, and they went into Egypt, okay, where the Nile River was, right at the, at the, the delta of the Nile, okay? So, so it was sort of famine-proof because of where it was. And so they, they traveled there, and when they got there, they found that their, their punk younger brother that they had sold into slavery years earlier was living there like a king. He was in charge. And that's, that's sort of this backdrop story. So this family goes to Egypt to flee famine. And, and, and in going to Egypt, they're blessed. They're blessed. God had, God had prepared a way for them to, 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 to have their needs met. Okay? So there's the text scroll. These are the families, okay? Twelve sons, 12 sons. Um, but what, where Exodus was, or Genesis, that's the previous story, about the last 12, 13 chapters of Genesis, where Genesis dealt with this family, Exodus is going to transition to deal with a nation, okay? It's going to deal with a nation. And that's what we find there in verses 6 and 7. Joseph died, as all men do, and his brothers and that whole generation. But the family stayed, and it says they were fruitful, right? They increased, they, were, they, they, they multiplied. They had many, many children, and those children had children. And it says they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They were kind of everywhere. All right? Keep reading with me, verse 8. So there arose a new king over Egypt. It says, who did not know Joseph. And Joseph was the one who was there who was in charge of, of the king's storehouse. Who died, who didn't, uh, he, new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel, or this, this family of Israel, they're too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Okay? These are still, there's archaeological sites where these places are on maps. I'm going to refrain from showing them to you. Okay? <clears throat> you, you appreciate my challenge. All right. But, but there's these, there are these places, these places that, that the Jewish people in their bondage built for the Egyptians. Okay? They built for the Egyptians. And it, it comes about because something happens over time. Now, it's... The, the beautiful thing about a biblical text scroll, or maybe the challenging thing about a biblical text scroll, is the amount of time that passes in that scroll, or in, that, in those first seven verses. Okay? Um, the United States of America, we use 1776, we're about 242 years old as a, an independent country, right? The period of time that these verses covers, scholars dispute it, but it's somewhere between 300 and 400 years of living in the land, multiplying, having children, grandchildren, those grandchildren's children, okay? And they just continued to grow. And the, the king, who's, uh, the Egyptians' kings were pharaohs, I think we know that, but, but the, the, the pharaoh, the king, decides these people, there's too many of them, if they decide to fight back, okay? 
If they decide if there's a war, we, we can't fight them off. So we're going to have to do something to try and get, keep them, get them in line, keep them in line, and keep them at bay. And the answer there became essentially what we would call slavery. They put them to work so hard and compensated them so little that they were essentially slaves. And they built these storehouses, okay? They built these storehouses. What we're talking about is bondage. And you see the meta, oh, it's spelled right. The meta-narrative, okay? The meta-narrative of the book of Exodus, it, it throws us right in to, to a setting, to a condition, and the condition is bondage. This is where the story, the big story of God's people, it begins with, with the condition of bondage. It assumes they weren't free. It just says, here's what happened in between the lines. They were enslaved. They were trapped. They were bound. And so we find that, 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 that when we start to think about the story, we, we have to deal with this issue of bondage. That the meta-narrative, if the meta-narrative of Exodus becomes sort of the big-picture meta-narrative of Christ and then Christ's work for all people, the beginning piece of the big story is bondage. It's, it's coming to terms with the reality that we're not free. We're, that, that the idea of liberty is a uniquely sort of, I might say, American idea, but we've been exporting it, right? But the idea of liberty was, is not a place where understanding God's story, is not, that's not where the story begins. The story begins with bondage, right? It begins with bondage. And we're going to say more about it here in just a minute, but I want to I take the story out of Exodus and into our lives. When we think about bondage, there's so many forms of bondage that any one of us could be wrestling with. There may be very real addiction that is a, that's a bondage for us. People-pleasing becomes a bondage. I'm not, I'm not free to live as I ought because I'm constantly worried about pleasing people. Our fears, our anxiety, depression, it, that we're bound by these things. Our failures, somehow we, we're identifying ourselves through, through past failure or present failure, and we feel bound by it. We, we are sort of bound by it. We're limited by it. Rejection of others. Power plays. Essentially, this story of Exodus is a, is a grand power play, right? Someone had more power, and they imposed it on the, the, the children of Israel. That happens to us all the time, right? We've got a, a workable level of freedom and liberty in our life, and then someone or something comes in and restricts it in ways where we get trapped. And I'm not free. My choices are they're not just limited, they're, they're like eliminated. And so we, we get stuck or bound. Sometimes we're bound by just an unknown future, the fear of what that might be. Health problems bind us. We get stuck. Bitterness binds us. My inability to forgive someone who I believe has done me wrong, and I'm stuck in that place. I'm not, I'm not free to forgive them. I'm not free to move on. I'm not, I'm not free to flourish as I ought to. There's lies we believe, things that we just believe are true that, that, that just aren't true. 
And we get stuck there. Maybe perfection. I don't struggle with that one. But being perfect all the time. Expectations that others have put on us. I wouldn't have thought of this. Our teaching team this week talked about comfort being a a bondage. And they're right. I had to nod and go, you're absolutely right. That we're so comfortable in our life the way it is. We're actually doing everything we can to maintain that comfort. We're no longer even free to go and do what we ought to do because we're just so comfortable in life the way it is. And maybe you're bound by a fear of looking foolish. I don't know, and this isn't an exhaustive list. It's just a list. But I think when we, we're honest with ourselves, I can go through that list and like half of them are mine that I'm carrying at the moment. I'm just sort of stuck in some places. The record keeps over and over again. And we need to understand something. The story through which we are, as as believers in Christ, are intended to understand our lives and ourselves through is a story that sort of assumes bondage, that we're bound, we're stuck. We, we might desire freedom, and we might work really hard to try and get it, but in the end, all we're doing is, is changing from one master to another. I don't like my current master who has me bound. If I can throw them off, great, but we wind up with some other master in its place. And so as we enter into this entire season, as we look at this book of Exodus, and as we rest here today on a few things... So we rest here on a few things about bondage and our present state. I think I'm asking you to simply sort of agree with me to recognize the reality of our situation, and it's this. In different ways, we're all sort of bound. We're sort of stuck. We're entrapped, enslaved. Okay? It's where we find ourselves at the beginning of the story. Now, here's the other thing about it. And um, I'll just make this statement, but our bondage, my bondage, your bondage, is a complicated mess of causes, okay? Like some, some of my bondage is because of my choices. Some of, it, some of my bondage I've inherited. It's just a reality, right? Like the, if, we, if we go back to the list for a second, right? There's things up there that are my fault. I'm bound, and I made a conscious choice to be bound by them. There's also things up there that I I didn't control, right? I I didn't ask for. In fact, I may have worked really hard to try and avoid. But the truth is, just our bondage, it's this complicated mess. And so I was trying to think of a way to describe this, and we're not quite there yet, though fall has clearly hit us. Um... But I thought about this guy and that mess, right? Christmas vacation, Clark gets out the Christmas lights, and he holds up this tangled mess of wires, Christmas lights. And when I started to think about, like, okay, our bondage and where we find ourselves, and I couldn't get this image out of my head, so I had to share it. Because sometimes we, we like, open up the garage to get into our stuff, our mess of life, and we pull out of our life the tangled mess of just wires and garbage, and we go, ugh. Sometimes we do exactly what Clark did, if you know the movie, right? 
He tosses it to his son. He's like, Russ, untangle this. Okay? <laughs> like, we do that, though, don't we? We kind of like take our mess, throw it on somebody else, and go, take care of this for me. Okay, that happens. That's a whole other sermon, okay? But the fact of the matter is, we need to make a recognition that you, did, you and I, we did not get to the place that we are today, like, simply. It's not just, it's not just this one thing. It's a complicated mess. There were influences in my life at an early age that led me to view myself in certain ways, Okay? And I chose at various times to reinforce that view of myself. Okay? And, and in the midst of viewing myself that way, I made really bad choices. Really bad choices. And those choices wound up putting, getting hooks in me. Hooks in me. Where I have addictions and places in life, thoughts in life, patterns that I reinforced. I didn't ask for them. In a rational moment, I never would have asked for them. But in moments of weakness, I took them. Okay? Sometimes it wasn't even a moment of weakness. In my strength, I acted in my pride. I started to believe things about myself that weren't true. I'm, I'm pretty dang good. You need me. And now I get, then I get stuck in this pattern of having to perform a certain way so that, so that I will still be needed. You see what I mean? It's It's complicated. This is not binary either or. This is a mess. Okay? And if it's a mess, we need to recognize this. It's not going to go away overnight. Okay? The children of Israel, it was hundreds of years that they were in bondage in, in Egypt. Hundreds of years. And even at the outset of this story, we can sort of like, spoiler alert you, it's going to be 70, 80 years before the first glimmers of freedom show up them. And, and this, is, this is what's true, okay? Our bondage is complicated, and it's not going to go away overnight. And so when we begin this entire conversation about bondage, patience is demanded, all right? If, if, if we want to begin, we can begin to see real freedom in areas, but the kind of freedom that's fully known to us is the journey of life that we're in. It's freedom in this place then to realize that Christ reveals to us we've got bondage in other areas. Okay? It's constantly handing over the places in our life, one after the next. So it's patience for the process in my own life, but it's also patience for the people around me. Right? I like that first part better. Sometimes. But would you be patient with me, please, because I'm a tangled mess? But you should have your act together. Your life should operate in a straight line so that I can expect, yeah, even demand things from you. And when I, when I make my demands, they happen promptly on my time frame. But patience, patience is going to be required as we begin to look at these things. We got to keep going. Okay. Let's see where else is, what else this takes us. Still in Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1. Look at verse 12. But look what happens. There's a big but here. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter, and hard ser- bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, 
They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. See what happens here now. So check out the pattern, okay? We're bound, or there's bondage, okay? There's bondage, and, and, and there's bondage because of, of factors primarily for the, the children of Israel here, factor, factors beyond their control. Hundreds of years earlier, they didn't ask for this form of slavery. It just came to them, okay? But now they find themselves in it. And so, but, but they're, they're, they're did, you, did you catch that in, in uh, verse 12? The more the Egyptians put pressure on them, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. Which leads us to sort of a second idea here, okay? Because all is not lost. Look, your bondage is a big tangled mess and so is mine, but here's the, here's the truth. Bondage can be a force that actually brings life and flourishing, okay? Bondage in and of itself, oh, it's, it's not desirable, but that doesn't mean that it's not useful in the hands of a good and gracious and all-powerful God. It's not the intention, but without it, there's no redemption. You see, bondage can be a force for God's good. Frederick Buchner, a pastor, teacher, says this. He says, keep in touch with it or with pain because it's at those moments of pain where you are most open to the pain of other people, most open to your own deep places. Keep in touch with those sad times because it is then that you are most aware of your own powerlessness crushed in a way by what is happening to you, but also most aware of God's power to pull you through it, to be with you in it. Maybe I like sad guy movies because I, I don't know. But, but the point is this, right? Like pain, we have a tendency to simply say pain is, all, is bad all through. And the reality is we've got places in the scriptures and we've got anecdotes from life and we've got people smarter than you and I who are, who've examined this and said, there's, there's also seems to be another pattern in the story. And the pattern is that with pain, there comes an increase of life and flourishing. Pain does not mean that we're losing. Pain doesn't mean that we're losing. Pain very well may mean that God is at work. God is at work. That the pain we're feeling right now may be the pain of the surgeon's hand and not the pain of the cancer. Do we understand? One of those brings life and healing. One of them ultimately only leads to death. That the pain that's going on in our life can be a tool of God. And so if that's the case, if bondage can be a force that actually brings life and flourishing, we have to, in the midst of bondage, we have to understand that we can't run from it or medicate it to simply find relief. I'm not saying that we... That we we try and inflict it, that we try to, to put more and more chains on ourselves. That's, that's, that's not the right path either. But in the midst of it, it can be a tool of God for our benefit. That bondage doesn't mean God has left us. It doesn't mean he's disinterested. It doesn't mean there's nothing going on that's, that's there to help us. But our bondage, the present sense of our life, the pain that you feel, the injustice that you, have to, to, that you have to deal with. God's in the midst of it. He uses it for our good to help us multiply and spread around the whole country. 
This was the story of the earliest Christians. The more, the more persecution that was put on them by the, by the Jews and, the, and then the Romans as they spread out, and the more that was put on them, the more they flourished. It's the story today. In places where the gospel is, is there's oppression and persecution, it's growing. When pressure is applied, when pain is felt, there seems to be an explosive power of the gospel of Christ. And so if we spend all of our time simply trying to extinguish the pain or numb the pain or just ignoring the pain or running from the pain, we very well may be running away from the instrument or the tool that God is using in our life to bring about the image of his son in us. Oh, I don't want that to be true. I want to show up on, at church and, and pass out magic pills that make all of our troubles go away and make us right. But it's not the path that God seems to, to put us on. He's put us on a path that has challenge and pain. That seems to be the story. So let's look at the rest of the chapter to see some people who found themselves in the middle of this and where they went from there. Verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt... <clears throat> said to the Hebrew midwives, the women delivering the babies, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua. Why don't we, anyway, our names are boring. Um, verse 16, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill them. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So catch this, right? They're, the king, the most powerful man in the land, tells the two women responsible, apparently, for, for help, helping all of the, the, the Israelite women birth their children. And he says, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, we don't care. And they say, because it knows the cause, they feared God. Notice, it's an interesting thing, notice. This is before the law, the rest of the Old Testament. They're simply relying on the reality that God is real, and he wouldn't have them do this. That's about all they had to go on. He's been faithful to like my grandfather's 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 grandfather. He was faithful there. I'm going to trust him now. That's about it. And they wouldn't do it because they feared the Lord. Keep reading verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? And here's where it gets ethically really sticky. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. <laughs> I know there's stories in the room of some of you who like delivered in cars and God bless you. You're very vigorous. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Verse 20, so God dealt with the midwives, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. It's an interesting thing too. Families here doesn't necessarily mean like they had their own children. It actually means they became sort of like the matriarchs of a family group, okay? Like they were blessed through generations. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you, sh you shall let every daughter live. So he couldn't, you know, he couldn't control these two women. So he, he made it just like a grand edict by fiat of the king. All the boy Hebrew children will die. 
So one, just to wrap this up, one more thought, okay, about these midwives. And, and, and here's the thing, too, like, when you see people lying in the Bible and getting blessed by God, that's not like a rule or a pattern, okay? It, there's clearly extenuating circumstances. We have neither the time nor do I have the energy to get into, you know, the details of the, the metaphysical debate here, okay? Um, but these women... They were presented with a real challenge. A real challenge. Do we follow this order and in so doing probably preserve ourselves? Or do we do what we know to be right and preserve the life of these children? They were presented with it. It's a very difficult, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of a decision we look at on the page and go, of course. Of course. But we're constantly, in our bondage, we're constantly called upon by the powers that bind us to do things that are only going to increase the bondage. You see, the addictive patterns in my life that have power over me constantly tell me that if you, if you don't stay in this situation of bondage, the pain that it's going to cost you to get out of it is going to be so debilitating you'll never recover. You'll be dead. It'll crush you, your family, done. The anxiety that we wrestle with, the fear that we wrestle with, it tells us that we can't make better decisions than the ones we're making right now. You're doing, we justify it all day long, right? You're doing the best you can. You're doing the best you can. You're doing the best you can. Making the decision that might preserve a low level of life but continues to reinforce the bondage in that life. What these women said was this. It might cost us everything. We may be found out. But we're going to make a decision. And so I would present this to you in closing. Okay. We may feel and rightly so, the bondage in our life. But just like these women who found themselves in bondage, that the life of faith in bondage means that we're doing the best we can with the information in front of us. Okay? Now, what that, okay, what that means is, it means that, that we can sort of, and this is the beginning pages of, of the story, right? We can start to let go of the worry and the concern that we have. That I've got to fix my own bondage. I've got to do something to make sure that I'm taken care of in the midst of my bondage. I've got to, I've got to mitigate all the risks so that I can escape this, that I can continue to live. What the midwives did was they took a risk based on the fact that there was, there was a higher calling than just the immediate relief of the situation for them. They put themselves on the line and at risk so that God's work could be done through the, through the they didn't know this, but through the future generation. They made the difficult choice rather than just simply bowing to the power that bound them. And, and I hope we can sort of rest in that. Because they feared, notice it was driven by their fear for God. 
there is a God. He is real. He has shown others and he's shown me that he will be faithful. Even if I have to make this difficult choice. I don't have all the information that I need. I don't know every eventual outcome. This very well could blow up in ways that cost me more pain. But I'm compelled that it's the right step. I'm compelled by my fear of God that he would have me here. And God honored that in these women. Now, we have more to go on than they did. There are things that we can try and justify based on what we, the words we say that maybe we believe that this is the right choice. But we better be sure. Because God has told us who his son is. He has shown us what life together and quite frankly, giving up your life for the good of your neighbor looks like through Jesus. And so we do the best that we can with what's in front of us. We're not going to solve this in a moment. Remember, our bondage is a tangled mess. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. Would you pray with me? God, we're, um, we continue to meet, we continue to gather, we continue to praise you, we continue to, to read your word because you have shown us that you're faithful even when, even when we feel stuck and trapped and bound. And God, I, um, I confess that I, am, I, want it, I want it done, and if it's going to get done, fast is best, right? So God, would you just, would you continue to show us, show me where, where I'm taking control, where I'm, I'm trying to escape your, your methods, your ways. God, would you, would you instill in us a fear for you, a trust, a faith in you like these women had? That in the midst of the situation, in the midst of the circumstance, you're still at work. You're not, you're not distant. You're not far away. You're right in the midst of this with us. You see us. You know, you know what motivates us and drives us. And somehow in your grace, you take into account all the things that, that we try to do but seem to make the tangle worse. So God, we just thank you. We thank you that you are here. I want to I get to a place where I even thank you for the mess and trust that you're at work in it. So God, would you, um, would you be with us now as we... we Offer praise back to you as just the thing that's in front of us to do. And, um, and God, we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.